0: We good, we on? Yep, great. Thanks everybody for coming. Welcome to uh, ARV203. This is a State of the Union report for ARVR at um, Amazon Web Services, and right now that's basically Amazon Sumerian. So we took kind of a look at the feedback from this same sort of session last year, and we got kind of split into thirds. You basically get your content's too high level, and you get your content's too low level, and then we, get, we want to hear from more customers. So we tried to address that this year by kind of rounding out with a couple extra speakers. So we have uh, Nell Wallachek, Principal Engineer at Amazon Sumerian. She's going to join to talk about the tech deep dive, basically into WebXR, the underlying technology of Amazon Sumerian. Uh, Rose Phillips, SVP of Digital Marketing at Sony Pictures. She's going to talk about uh, basically a cool new project they worked on um, with their partner, Trigger. And Jason, the CEO of Trigger, is going to be here uh, with uh, the new Spider-Man movie that's coming out. So that'll be a cool demo. We'll show some, uh, some live things there. And then we have a, kind of a, a QR code you can take with you if you want to try it after the, uh, after the talk. All right, so we're basically going to start with this background of Amazon Sumerian. Why did we build this? What makes it unique? And that's going to drive us into the technology underneath it. So from there, Nell will come up, talk about WebXR, um, and then we'll go back to Sony. And uh, I'll wrap up with some things that we've launched in the last couple months uh, that are new uh, around Amazon Sumerian and other integrations with AWS. All right, so let's get going. So what is Amazon Sumerian, and, and why do we build something so high up the stack? So this kind of surprised customers last year. We launched at Midnight Madness. And it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, we already have a game engine, we have Lumberyard. But you know, we start with a customer, we work backwards. And what we heard you know, from our enterprise customers is that they're getting pushed into immersive development um, in a whole bunch of different mediums. So we hear, like, I need to add voice and context to my web app. I need my chatbot to be smarter. You know, I need spatial awareness around my applications. I want to visualize IoT data you know, looking through a camera or through a headset. So we had all these customers that are traditionally in like a web mobile infrastructure sort of setting that are getting pushed into skills that are typically found in game development. So you know, we think ARVR is basically coming, like we, we kind of saw the trend, you know, we all kind of, you know, believe it's coming, uh, it's past the point of, of really being a fad. So we said, okay, it's time for us to address it here at Amazon. So, uh, you know, this is about the time where you could do like the show of hands on where people are with their projects, and no one would participate, and then I'd like, look silly, like I already do. But so I'm going to guess. Like, so you, we're here because of a couple of different reasons. We kind of believe the same thing, right? So, we're already working on an AR/VR project uh, at your business or your personal project or your hobby, and you know how much friction there is to get started. You know the challenges that are faced with that. Uh, you know, getting into 3D from a traditional kind of a web or mobile stack, um, or you know, you're just planning on getting started. So you'll be joining us in these types of um, these types of challenges uh, soon enough. Or it's just intimidating. This is another thing we hear from customers. It's it really hard to get started. There's so many different tool chains to worry about. I've got to worry about animation, and modeling, and rigging, and how do I get you know, these things optimized for the browser. So there's a lot of different things to work on. Or basically, the SageMaker session was full, and you know, you're here because there's room here. So uh, If that's you, actually, we hope to win you over. You know, this is going to be a cool talk, I think, and a lot of cool stuff, so uh, maybe it'll, it'll get you kind of excited to get started in ARVR. So we've seen these types of transformations before, know these mediums sort of switch. You know, we saw it uh, from on-premise to cloud when we started AWS. We saw it from you know, web to mobile first, and you know, um, basically desktop to mobile, on-premise to cloud, all these different sort of transitions. And right now, all of these different mediums are landing um, with this element of immersion that's getting tacked on. I talked a little bit about that earlier, but you know, the chatbots are getting smarter. Facial recognition can drive context in your application. You can really connect with a customer on a level that you couldn't have a couple years ago. And that whole space is accelerating, and it's applicable to every type of application that you build. So what types of lessons can we learn from these types of transitions in the the past? Uh, First, um, companies really don't want to spend a whole bunch of capital expense to try to get into a new space and explore it, especially if it's at this phase where it's just being defined. You want to capitalize on your your operational expense, on things that you already have um, on your team. So how do we do that? We use the people that we have, like typically web, mobile developers. We tackle the skills that they have in-house already. And then you can start to explore and see if it's the right space for you and your business. Then you can start to do things like build a 3D team and dive deeper on the specialty areas. Um, You also use the tools that you have. So game engines are great for developing games. They're professional tools for professional developers. They have um, steeper uptick on the uh, learning curve. Some of them have license fees, uh, different types of expenses that go along with these. Even ones like Lumberyard, where there's no royalty fees, there's no seat fees, these are still kind of harder to get started, and they're professional tools. So how can we break down these barriers and get something into your hands and into production quicker? So at Sumerian, uh, u- using nothing more than your browser, you can basically build an app, deploy it, and get it running on Oculus Go in under 10 minutes. We're going to do that live on stage in the 2.04 session t- tomorrow afternoon, so if you want to see that, you can go to that session. Um, but yeah, you can go from a standing start, using nothing but the browser, to a production VR app you know, in a couple minutes. So. So what does it really look like when a customer gets started? So they get really excited, it's kind of cool. You get that first kind of you know, wave all the way through, and you know, something's out there. I got a link I shared, my Oculus, I opened it, I can dive into my scene. Um, but you quickly realize there's a bunch of other stuff that happens. You know, like if I was to do this in another tool, I gotta to worry about all the different platforms, all the different device drivers, the wall gardens. Like, and then you have distribution, which is really the biggest challenge, I think, that, that happens today. If you're working on an app in-house, you don't want it on the App Store, right? Uh, but it, you still have to share it. So they have to make builds. You have to build for different devices and then ship the hardware, ship the software, ship the different kind of executables for each platform. It's a super cumbersome process, um, and it's very painful for, for developers now. So Amazon Sumerian is basically targeting you know, that type of uh, workflow to, to, to lower the area of friction for enterprises. All right, so how do we do this? Uh, this is a kind of a, a showreel of uh, Sumerian. So it, it's a full in-browser 3D engine. Uh, Using nothing more than the browser, you can drag and drop your artwork uh, into the scene. You can use the 3D editor to lay out your scene. We have a visual state machine that does your kind of uh, logic sequences. So with really no code, you can get a a nice mechanical scene working. Um, If you want to dive in, it's just JavaScript. So it's still familiar to any web uh, developer out there today. Um, And then you deploy it by just clicking the publish button, and you get a URL you can share with your customers. So that's pretty much it. You can do that entire workflow just using your browser. Some of the other things that we do to kind of speed up speed up the workflows, if you look at kind of uh, your first time building a 3D scene, you end up with this challenge of like, what do I put in it, right? And enterprises, you're usually using like, um, you know, furniture and desks and basic sort of everyday objects. So we partnered with our friends over at amazon.com to bring like basically thousands of real world objects um, that have been modeled and then stored in Sumerian's asset library. So these will continue to roll out over the next couple years, but we'll have, you know, hundreds of thousands of these uh, in, in a short amount of time that you can use royalty-free in your Sumerian scenes. This opens up a whole type of monetization for developers that wasn't really available either, where you can use the Amazon Associates program to send referral traffic back, uh, if that makes sense for your business, too. All right, so you should expect this. Obviously, we have uh, deep integration with other Amazon services, Um, some of them more, more tightly integrated than others, but the AWS SDK ships with every single scene, so when you do publish, you can go uh, right back to um, the cloud core and kind of grab any, any of the other resources that you want. Um, some of them, like I'll give you an example, um, we have deeper ties with the machine learning set. So this one of the first things we saw customers use Sumerian for was digital signage. So we see like uh, you know menu boards in quick serve restaurants or you know the welcome screens in a bank or hotel lobbies. And then those started to really get to the area where they wanted to be personalized. So, you know, customers were putting uh, Lex flows to drive the chat conversation, and they're talking back to their users with Polly. So we roped all of these different things together into what we call Sumerian hosts. So Sumerian hosts are basically 3D digital characters that are powered by Lex and Polly and then the rest of the AI services that you can deploy to any medium, like it could be a TV screen, AR, VR. Um, you can customize them. You can have them basically drive contextual conversations with your customers. Um, and, and this is all part of Sumerian at no additional cost, and you're paying for Lex and Poly already. So it's super easy to get started, and it's a huge uplift on you know what what you get from a default chatbot with minimal amount of extra effort. So some of the um, scenes that we just breezed through there in the video, like Weatherbug, their production app for iOS and Android, they visualize air quality in AR. Uh, so you can see that in the App Store today. Electronic Caregivers doing some talks this week. They have a great personalized um, care assistant that does everything from gait analysis on, on patients to... You know, kind of you know, care instructions and things like that. So um, there's just some great examples already on the market today. So, so hosts have been super popular. And I wanted to kind of just plug a couple new hosts that we launched this week. So um, we had two basically last year we launched. We, we did two more during the year, and then we just did three more uh, this week. So they're, they're getting higher fidelity, lower size. Uh, the animations that they lip sync to um, are more tightly coupled with Polly's um, speech output. So you see natural kind of lip syncing and animations right on top of the audio stream. So there's um, seven of them there now that you can use uh, through any of the Sumerian uh, scenes. So. Cool. So okay, finally, um, I think the, the biggest thing, the biggest pain point that we tar- sort of remove for customers is that deployment phase. So you know if you are building in a traditional engine, you have to build it for each different target and then deploy it. So this you get a URL, and one of the one of the really benefits. Um, of Sumerian in this particular context is that you can build the scene one time. So I can open the same URL and get an AR, an AR presence. I can get the same one in VR, the same one with like a magic window in my, you know, my phone where I move around the scene. And all that's the same scene, same URL, same deployment pattern. So that kind of you know, mixed modal um, distribution pipeline is super powerful for customers, too. Now, OK, so we, we, we've down all these barriers. What types of things are customers building with this? So I've got a couple use cases here I'll go through. And then we'll dive a little deeper on the tech. So um, so you know, we, we try to encourage customers to start with areas that have quick and obvious um, pain points or quick ROI. So one of the things we're seeing is basically anything that you can simulate that's uh, safer to do in a simulation or like heavy machinery, surgical training, things like that. Those are really interesting areas for VR. Um, also, when you're talking about collaboration around a physical space or a physical device, so this could be industrial planning for you know, building a machine or laying out like, a scene architecturally and things like that. So we have customers that have huge amounts of brick and mortar um, properties that are doing things like refresh their their store layouts, or refresh the the type of furniture they're using. And people are spread out all over different geographical locations, and they need to work together to get that space right. So what they're doing today is shipping basically VR um, headsets, uh, shipping huge executables, and then trying to get on a conference call at the same time to try to interact. And it's just super not efficient. Um, So now they can share a URL. If you're in the space, you can use an iPad, look around. You know, if you're an architect in a different state, you can drop in, into VR you know, just through that URL. And then you can make changes in real time and collaborate. And it's just a, it's a much easier workflow for an enterprise. <clears throat> Other areas we encourage customers to work in are basically incremental value on top of workflows you already have in the cloud. So one of the things Sumerian can do is, is basically put a, a nice layer of value on top of stuff that's already in AWS. So IoT is a really great like, low-hanging fruit for this type of work. You have all your data connected, your machines are already talking to AWS, so with a quick subscription in your Sumerian scene, you can add a visualization layer on top of your IoT devices. It's super trivial, it'll you know, take 20, 30 lines of JavaScript, and then you can start adding value to, to workflows that are already there. So this is another type of pattern that we think is super important um, short-term to get kind of AR VR moving more quickly. All right, so that brings me to, to now. So underneath all these technologies, the reason that Sumerian can move so quickly is because it's built on something called WebXR. So now as a principal engineer, she's also the spec writer for WebXR for W3C, so thank you.
1: Thanks, Kyle. All right, everyone. So we're gonna take a quick chat about what WebXR is. It's so that deep dive we were talking about before. So WebXR is a shorthand for the WebXR device API. It is an upcoming W3C standard that is implemented inside web browsers and used inside web pages to talk to AR and VR hardware. The standard is being designed by an industry-spanning coalition, obviously Amazon, but also Google, Mozilla, Microsoft, Samsung, Oculus, Magic Leap, and many more. The specifications first official working draft will be published by the W3C next month. Implementations are already underway in most major browsers, and full availability will be expected sometime in 2019. If you have heard of WebVR, that was an experimental API that is currently used inside of Sumerian, Um, and it will be replaced by WebXR when it is finally ready. I'm often asked what the relationship between WebXR and WebGL is. For those of you who've never heard of WebGL, just a quick overview. It's an API used to render pixels in 2D and 3D graphics. There's two versions of it. There's WebGL1 and WebGL2. They're roughly based on OpenGL ES2 and OpenGL ES3, respectively. So the relationship between WebGL and WebXR is that WebGL is for rendering. Once you've rendered those pixels, WebXR is what gets it up onto the headset. WebXR is about hardware. WebGL is about drawing. The thing is, most people don't actually hand author WebGL code. And to give you a quick sense of why, let's take a quick glance at what this hello world for WebGL looks like. Mm. And for all of that, we have now drawn a triangle. A 2D triangle. And we didn't even draw it in a loop, we drew it once. It is a spectacular triangle, but it is just a triangle. And if you wanna do something slightly more artistic, like this scene with 3D models, materials, lighting, physics, and more, it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. And so instead, folks use 3D engines like Sumerian, which frees them to focus on the experience they want to build. And while hand-authoring WebXR code is less complex than authoring WebGL code, most folks won't need to do it because the engine that does their WebGL code also will speak WebXR. So why are we gonna do a deep dive on WebXR today? Well, WebXR is the API representation of the core concepts you need to be able to build XR on the web. Understanding those concepts is gonna help you build better experiences. Look, the web is all about delivering content that is fitted for the device it's viewed on. PC and mobile is a perfect example of this. And it's especially true for XR because of the wide breadth of hardware. Here's a couple examples of ways that XR hardware can vary. First, it can be a VR headset, opaque, you can't see through it, or it can be an AR headset, where you actually can see the real world along with your virtual content. Within the AR space, it can be see-through, glass lenses, or it can be pass-through, a camera. It might be something you wear on your head, or it could be something you hold in your hand, like a mobile phone. It might have only the ability to track you while you're standing still, or it might have the ability to track you as you walk around a small room, or it might have the ability to track you as you walk long distances. And the key thing here is that WebXR allows developers to stop thinking about the exact hardware. Is it a Gear VR? Is it an Oculus Rift? Is it a HoloLens? And instead, reason about these properties and others. So what I'm gonna cover is how WebXR works and what the core concepts are that back it. But before I do, just a quick quick reminder. (laughs) WebXR isn't final yet, I know that looks very scary. It's it's more stable than it sounds, um, but they aren't completely finished yet. And so some of the things that I present today, it's cutting edge, it may be changing before the standard actually finally locks. The stuff I'm covering today probably won't, but just a heads up. Okay, so let's talk about some core concepts. The first is the notion of session, then we're gonna talk about reference spaces, then we're gonna talk about input. To start a WebXR experience, a developer needs to open a session against an XR device. This is the active connection used to communicate back and forth with the actual hardware. And there are three types of sessions. The first is an immersive VR session. So in this situation, the developer has exclusive access to the XR device's position and orientation, and it has complete control over the display. It's in charge. The second is immersive AR. It also has complete control over the display and exclusive access to position and orientation like immersive VR, but it also adds access to environmental information. And it automatically composes the content that you're drawing, your virtual content, with the real world. This last one is inline. It's actually not immersive. um, And it doesn't have access to the XR device's display. It's got restricted information about position orientation. So what is it for? It's used to show previews of the immersive experience you are about to display, and to provide a consistent experience when an XR device isn't actually present, like on a PC without a peripheral plugged in. Which session type you're going to use is gonna depend on the experience you're building. And actually, in some cases, it makes sense to do all three. Uh, product Viewer is a great example of this. You would probably provide an inline view of the product you're selling, you might have an AR view where you can actually see the product in your space, but even if you didn't have AR, it's still valuable to provide a VR experience because it can give you a sense of the scale of the product and how it might actually feel to be around it. One quick aside before we move on though. You may have noticed that I was talking about exclusive access to position orientation data and complete control over the pixels in the display. So when we talk about immersive sessions, this is a fairly intrusive thing not to mention the extra information available for an AR session. So it's really important that users are comfortable with sharing that information with the website. And so the page's ability to request an immersive session is limited to happening in response to a user gesture, like a click or a tap, and the the browser will be displaying a consent dialogue to make sure that the user is actually comfortable with taking control of the XR hardware. All right, the next concept we're gonna talk about is reference spaces. So computers don't perceive and understand the environment the way that people do. But for an XR device to work, it does need to know where the user is in space. The technology used to to do this is called a tracking system, and there's a really wide variety in how they work. But actually with WebXR, developers don't need to know which kind of tracking hardware is present, whether it's outside in, inside out, orientation only, doesn't matter. Instead, what they wanna know is, can the device that I'm running on meet the mobility requirements of the experience I'm trying to build. So WebXR divides those mobility requirements into three categories called reference spaces. The first is stationary. It's the right choice if the user doesn't need to walk around, for example, a 360 video or a cockpit simulator. It's always possible for an immersive session, um, regardless of the underlying tracking technology. And it's the only reference space possible for an inline session, though it may not always be available, say, on a PC that doesn't actually uh, move around at all. The next one is bounded. This is the right choice if your experience requires the user to walk short distances. Uh, For example, it could be a a dancing game or a product viewer where you need to look at it from all sides. Not all XR devices are going to be able to support this, um, though more likely over time, more will. Um, So it's worth considering having a fallback stationary experience for your customers. And the last one is unbounded. This is the right choice if you're building an experience that isn't confined to a room. For example, a guided tour of a campus. Mostly it's going to be AR hardware that uses this, but it will be possible on some VR systems. All right, let's talk about input. You know, I gave a lot of examples of ways that XR hardware varies and input varies even more. Some devices use motion controllers that you hold in your hand. Some have buttons on the side of the headset. Some use sensors to observe the user's actual hands. Some use traditional gaming controllers that have no motion information. Some use touchscreens like handheld mobile devices, and there's a lot more. And like the XR devices themselves, there's new hardware all the time. The thing that's common, though, is that you use them all to aim and fire an event to select. In WebXR, while the input sources may vary, the thing that unites them is that aiming and selecting. And so we divide them up by how you aim. The first category of aiming is using a tracked pointer. Think motion controller, but it could be a hand. It's got its own position and orientation data for aiming. And if it's a motion controller, it's got buttons. When you're using something like this, in your experience, you'll wanna draw a ray from the motion controller to the thing that you're hitting and you probably wanna draw a cursor where it intersects the environment. On opaque displays, like a VR headset, you're gonna wanna actually draw a virtual representation of that motion controller because the user can't see their own hands. The second category of aiming is the gaze-based aim. You'd use this with one of those traditional game pads uh, or a device that has buttons on the sides. It can fire an event, but it has no pose of its own, and so it uses the XR device's pose, the head pose, to aim. And in this case, you're not gonna wanna draw a ray because it would come from right between the user's eyes and be very uncomfortable, but you probably would wanna draw a cursor where it intersects the environment. And the last category for input aiming is screen-based. So this is gonna be limited to those inline sessions we talked about before or on uh, XR devices like phones. So a user taps the screen and that screen location is used to project a ray into the virtual world and that's where the intersection happens. And in this case, because the user actually tapped that spot, you actually don't need to draw a cursor or array. Okay, so we've got some of these core concepts down. Now we're actually gonna do a deep dive and we're gonna look at some code at how WebXR actually works. The steps we're gonna follow are we're gonna check for XR support, then we're gonna request access to that device, then we're gonna make a reference space, get those WebGL resources for drawing, register for our input event so that we can respond to the user's actions, and then we're actually gonna run that loop so we're not just drawing that triangle once. First things first. Here's a sample page that has a button, and the user's gonna click this button to enter AR. On load, you can see we've got this helper function called Check AR Support, and we use it to enable and disable the button whether or not AR is possible. We determine this by calling this function, navigator.xr.supportSessionMode and we're gonna pass in immersive-AR. It determines whether or not AR is possible, and if it is, it will fulfill the promise, and if it isn't, it will reject it. And you can see we toggle the button as as accordingly. It's also worth noting that hardware can be plugged or unplugged while the page is running, so we also wanna make sure we register for this device change event and call that same helper function and response. All right, here's the click handler for that button from the previous page. Its job is to call navigator.xr.requestSession, And it's actually gonna pass in the immersive AR that it checked on the slide before. Remember, because we're talking about an immersive session, this call will only succeed in response to a click handler and only if the user gives consent. And if it does succeed, it's gonna invoke this on session started helper function Here's that helper function. It saves off the session to keep it alive. And then it invokes these helper functions, which we're gonna walk through in a second. But before I do, I wanna point this out, which is the XR session has a request animation frame function, and you use that to register the callback that will get fired at the refresh rate of the device's display. On um, XR hardware, this, it varies, um, usually with between the range of 60 and 90 hertz. Okay, so here's what we've covered so far. We checked for XR support and we requested that device access. Now let's look at those helper functions for steps three, four, and five. Here's the first one, create reference space. In this sample, we're gonna create a stationary reference space. So we're gonna build this options dictionary that contains stationary. We're also gonna ask that the origin be placed on the floor by requesting the subtype floor level. And then we pass those options into the session's request reference space function And when it succeeds, we save the result. That's it. The next of the steps that we looked at before was getting those WebGL resources. So, here we've got standard WebGL code. The WebGL context comes from a Canvas object. There's nothing WebXR specific here so far. But to use that WebGL context, we have to create an XR WebGL layer. This is the layer that creates the graphics buffers that are optimized for the XR hardware. Um, and it's responsible for actually passing the pixels that are drawn to the hardware when the callback is completed for each frame. We skipped a line, didn't we? This XR compatible Okay, so what this does is it ensures that all of the WebGL resources are gonna get created on the right graphics adapter. This mostly matters for PCs where you can have more than one graphics adapter and the headset could be plugged into any of them. However, it's worth noting that if it actually needs to change adapters, it's going to use the standard WebGL context loss behavior. So if you wanna make sure you catch that so you can create your resources on the correct GPU, you actually have to register for these WebGL context lost and WebGL context restored events. I'm not gonna do a primer on WebGL right now, but this is very important. Okay, the last of those helper functions is this registering for input events. First thing we do here is we register for the input sources changed. This will get fired when a motion controller is connected or disconnected, for example. So that's how we know we need to start drawing new ones or not drawing them. And then we're gonna register for the select events. These are the events that allow the user to select an object and have the page respond accordingly. This is pretty standard kind of uh, hover type behavior, so I'm not gonna dig into these too deeply, but you can see there's a select, a select start, and a select end. All right, making really good progress. We are ready to take a look at the actual loop. So here's that callback that we registered for before. The first thing it does is call the frame that's passed in, it calls its getViewerPose function, and it passes in the reference space in which the coordinates of the pose should be returned. If the viewer can't be located in that reference space, say they've walked out of the range of the tracking hardware or they covered the sensors, then this is gonna return null. And there's nothing we can do this frame, so we might as well move on. If the viewer can be located, then it's time to update the position of those input sources that we're aware of so we can draw them in the right place. Then we're gonna run the simulation step. This is a helper function, it's not WebXR specific. It's where you uh, step forward your animations or run your physics or any of the things that you're normally going to do to do 3D rendering. Then we're going to actually draw each of the views for each eye. We're going to use the projection matrices and the view matrices supplied in that pose object, the ones that are correct for that exact frame for where the user is. And then the last thing we're going to do is re-register to get this callback on the next tick of the refresh of the display. And that's it. That's WebXR in a nutshell. There are a few things that I didn't cover today. Maybe you expected me to. um, Part of it is that some of them are still under development. So I'm gonna give you a a tiny little sneak peek of some of the topics that we're currently working on uh, finalizing in the WebXR spec today. Um, One is expanding the input functionality to make sure that you can actually get the information from all of the buttons on a motion controller, as well as be able to know which one you're drawing. Another is finalizing the AR features. I didn't touch on those very deeply today. We are actively under development on things like hit testing against the environment and anchoring objects in space. One of the other things that we hear a lot is that people want to be able to use existing web technologies to build the 2D UIs that exist inside their 3D scenes. And we are working on ways to do that right now. But probably the most important thing we're doing is we're finishing the standard. So I'd like to bring Kyle back on stage to talk about what's next. Thanks, Kyle.
0: Thanks, Can we switch back to the other mic? Hello? Test, test, test. Oh, uh, okay, there we go, great. Uh, so thanks, Noel. so it's me. I'm high-level guy back again. So, so, we did, so we tried to do both You know, the overview and then dive deep for a little while in the tech underneath. Um, now we're gonna address that third part, the part about you know, what are customers building with this? And like Noel said, it's, it's still early for WebXR, it's early for Amazon Sumerian. But you know there are customers like Weatherbug and Mapbox and Electronic Caregiver, Fidelity Investments that are pushing out production applications already. And the, the most recent example is from Sony Pictures. So um, we have Rose Phillips from Sony, from Sony and uh, Jason Yim from Trigger. We're going to roll basically the promo video first. Uh, don't forget to grab one of these um, handouts before you leave. You can try it on your own. Um, so we'll watch the video. And then uh, Jason and Rose will join us to talk a little bit about the app. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so Rose, so tell us a little bit about the project and maybe the timeline that you were under to get this done.
2: Yes, yeah, so um, Spider- man Into the Spider-Verse is not Sony's first Spider-Man movie, but it's a really special one for Sony. It's our first fully animated Spider-Man, and it features uh, Miles Morales, who plays, um, plays Spider-Man. He's from Brooklyn and a teenager. And so for um, this project, which you saw a little bit of a, a demo of, we were really looking for um, Something that could bring his action and style to life in a way that could really scale. Um, and for us this time, building an app uh, just that was a big barrier to entry and a lot of friction that we didn't want. So we wanted something that could really scale, which is why um, you know, WebAR made a lot of sense, not just because the, the web name in it, but um, for other reasons. So that's why we looked to to trigger to help us create something.
0: What kind of timeline were you on for this?
2: Crazy timeline, so we, we created this, uh, we kicked this off in, in mid-October, um, and really wanted to have it ready, our, our core flight, the movie comes out in December, so we really needed to be ready, you know, this week to get us into our core branding campaign.
0: So, so like two months. So, so, so Jason's from Trigger, so Trigger's a partner. Um, you guys have a huge deep history with Spidey, but even with that kind of context, like how do you get something like that done in two months?
3: Yeah, so my team and I, we've worked on every Spidey since the first movie, Uh, even named my dog Peter Parker. And our first uh, AR project was actually with Sony in 2009. It was mobile web, I mean, a webcam based AR. So I felt that we were kind of uniquely suited for this. But even then, like with that kind of timeline, like it really was a a massive team effort. Um, I mean, the Sumerian team was on support daily. Uh, Eighth Wall, which provided kind of the web AR tech uh, the underlying uh, tech was was also uh, on, on uh, daily for us, um, and then just getting through all the creative approvals and getting the assets from um, Sony Animation and working with Rose's team—that was probably record-breaking in terms of studio approval for us. That's so cool. So, what was like your biggest surprise, I guess, like during the project? Um, I think we've been we've been in AR for a long time, and we've we've done a lot of firsts, and I think using early tech. And we were super surprised at everything kind of working out of the box, um, especially kind of the core functionality of the web AR. So, as a developer, we didn't have to worry about you know tracking or recognition or uh, or shaders and renders and stuff like that. We could just focus on the experience, which is super important. Um, when you guys actually try it out, the fact that uh, Spidey is appearing kind of life size is a big deal. Normally, especially on kind of first tries, we're we're doing tabletop kind of AR, but uh, we can drop Spidey in the room, you can actually look up and you can see he comes through a portal. Uh, that was a big deal. And then I think the important thing is that WebAR is, is about reach. It's about trying to get to as many people as possible. So the fact that uh, it works on much older phones was super impressive as well. That's great. So I guess, like, what's, what's next? What are you looking forward to with, with WebXR? Uh, on our end, we'd love to tie into the, your AI hosts. I think that would be cool, super huh? cool. Um, and then the second thing is like again scale like we want WebAR to, to work for everybody. Uh, so that means uh, that, that that solves the distribution side um, but Sumerian will help solve the authoring side because we need something to to be able to handle that many assets. Um, and then the, the middle piece we have to solve is going to be um, the 3d pipeline. So instead of just miles one Spidey, we want to bring in, every Spider-Man from the Spider-Verse, and, and that changes the scale of things. And that's so cool.
0: Well, okay, great. Well, I, I can't wait to see the film. So um, anything else? Uh, closing words, I guess, on the, the Spidey film? or
2: No. You can check it out in theaters in December, okay. December fourteenth, And then I think, yeah, there, there's cards there where you guys can all try out the experience.
0: Great. Yep. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So, thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thank you. We, yeah, That's always hard, they have to kind of sit through listening to me and then, you know, then just, like deep dive and then they, they get to still come up in the middle, so uh, we really appreciate you guys doing that. So, all right, so I'm gonna close up with a couple like, um, basically these aren't really announcements, we've already released these things, this is just recent things that we've done um, that we didn't really push out too much press around, um, around Amazon Sumerian and then we'll have time to take some questions if anyone's interested in that. Um, so first, you know, Sumerian is basically, because it's web-based, by nature it's open, right? So when you publish a scene and the preview, uh, even through GA, you get a URL, and anyone who hits the URL can open the scene. So customers immediately want to protect their content. So we worked with the team uh, that runs AWS Amplify to build an entire um, XR spec around that where you can now publish and protect your scene a couple lines of code, and you can add off an entire serverless backend, uh, and then you basically get a, a protected um, you know, web deployment of your 3D uh, content. So that was a huge launch for us. That's already public. It's out there. There's a a set of XR components that are actually in a pull request right now, so you'll see more movement on that just in the next couple days. Uh, we added a VR controller asset pack. So um, even on our side, you know, because WebXR does kind of do a lot of the work for us, you still have trouble, like, I want, I want my Oculus Go con- uh, controller to look like an Oculus Go controller. I want my Vive one to look like Vive controllers. So we did a lot of work to basically make that easier. So you drag and drop one um, asset pack into your scene, and you attach it to your camera, And then whatever rig you're using will automatically render the right one. We'll we'll push it to right hand or left hand based on your preference. So we do all that work for you. All the scaffolding of building a VR application is kind of uh, basically removed. So you can really go, like I said, I'm gonna do this live on stage tomorrow. You can go from nothing to a working VR app and publish it in a couple minutes without worrying about any of those types of details. All right, so we added three new hosts. We talked about that already. Um, These are great in that these are actually on the next gen of poly voices. So you'll see a huge difference in like the the quality of the voice output and the, the matching of the, the phone shapes that we're making when we do the lip syncing. Uh, so those are great hosts, you can try those out today. Um, we also released something called animations as an asset. So if you're already using Sumerian, this is kind of important. If you're first time into it, you'll, you'll sort of expect this works. But um, similar, sort of just a quick kind of example, if I was gonna animate a car and then rotate all the wheels, um, before this feature came out, you'd have four copies of the same animation, one for every wheel. So now you can kind of reference these animations. It tightens your scene size down, Uh, makes it faster to deploy and download over the wire, so it speeds up the uh, end experience. Uh, We had a Japanese language support, so you'll see that in the IDE. Um, That's available, obviously, we're in in every region, but now um, if if you're using Japanese as your language, you'll see that automatically. Um, We added multi-user sharing, so we're doing this in a couple different ways. Um, There's there's an article that we published on, uh, basically built on AWS AppSync, which is a GraphQL backend, So you can sync your scenes to GraphQL. So all the different entities based on every instance of it running um, can kind of tell each other where they are. So if you move something, everyone else will see something move. Um, We also have customers using AWS IoT as a backend. So if you want more of a real time, like super low latency throughput, like as I'm watching something move or waving my arms, you can use IoT to kind of broadcast the movements in the scene. So both of those scripts are out and published today. Uh, And then we have, I don't have a video for this, but this will go on the blog in the next week. we started basically experimenting with, you know, what does ML look like in a browser? Because there's a whole bunch of movement around reinforcement learning, uh, using game engines and simulation, and a browser seems to make sense for a lot of these types of workloads. You know, I can put, uh, you know, a low fidelity scene together. I can, you know, basically punt that entire part of the graphics um, engine to uh, to the browser, and then I can focus on my my ML model and my training. So, so that was the last of the features that we wanted to kind of just make sure everyone's aware of today. So. Great, um, I think we've got about 20 minutes left, so um, we can do. We have a couple handheld mics. If anyone has a question, we'll, we can walk around and kind of um, take those. So. I can't see too well from up here, so. Uh, we got one in the back, at least. Sorry. Thanks for running the mics around. <laughs>
4: What is um, WebXR's relationship to, or maybe analogy to, things like DirectX and OpenGL, and how might DirectX. they interact? Because it
0: looks like WebXR is like a DirectX for the web, correct? Let's get the other mic on. Nels obviously a lot much more qualified for this question than I am. So,
1: <laughs> sorry, I de- demiked myself. I thought I was done. <laughs> um, uh, who, ha- who asked that question? Where are you? Sorry. Okay. Hi. Um, so the relationship between things like DirectX and, and the, the analogy is more like um, WebGL is to DirectX as uh, WebXR is to like um, uh, OpenXR or OpenVR or the underlying platforms. So the actual rendering tech, things that you think of as DirectX, that's WebGL. So you use that to draw the pixels. And then WebXR is about talking to the XR hardware. So it's about t- finding out where the user is in the space, and actually taking the pixels that you've drawn with things like WebGL, or not just like WebGL, WebGL, and actually getting it up on the headset so the user can see them. Does that answer your question? Yep. Okay.
0: Any other questions? Oh, we got one over there. I guess. Sorry. Thanks, Jason. We got to use the mic because they're being recorded. So. Otherwise, we could just yell stuff out.
3: Hi, DP Prakash, Global Foundries. How
0: well does your AR engine integrate with your AI engine? And can you talk about any use case you have? Like, for example, chatbot could be one. Yeah, I can take that. Yeah, so um, basically the question's around integration with the AI services. So uh, basically, if you, if you wanted to build a chatbot, you, you'd basically say import asset, you'd pick the host you want, the character goes in your scene. So as long as you have a, a Cognito pool that can authenticate that end URL, Uh, you basically just type in the text and pick your poly voice and that's the end of that. If you built an entire Lex kind of flow to drive that conversation, all you have to do is pick the Lex uh, flow that you wanna use in the dropdown and then we'll take care of everything else. So as soon as that host starts up, uh, you you can tell her where to pay attention or where where you want him to pay attention to. We have a point of interest system basically to follow like a point in 3D space and then they'll handle the entire Lex conversation on their own. So you can imagine like um, deploying this to a TV that has a camera enabled, so they can, uh, you can basically tell the host, you know, when you see somebody, uh, I want you to maintain eye contact. So as you move around in front of it, it'll it'll move around too. You can use recognition to get that context of who am I actually talking to. And then the Lex flow underneath will drive the conversation itself. So, and it's basically all things that you'd have already done uh, if you're doing kind of chatbot work right now. And you can just add that extra layer of immersion on top of it. We're going like, up the new runner. We've got one over here, too, next.
4: Um, first off, thanks for your talk. Um, I'm wondering, I know you said that AR isn't really completely settled yet, but do you think that WebXR will be able to handle like uh, object recognition in the scene, say like even human beings and using gestures from a, a human that you're seeing in a device as part of your WebXR scene as sort of the input? So like, if someone waves at you, would, would I be able to process that in WebXR?
1: That, that's a great question. The boundary between the kind of um, AR content and things that would otherwise generally be considered um, computer vision is a little bit of a blurry one, so it's a, it's a totally reasonable question. Um, as of right now, that's not something that we're thinking falls squarely in the lap of uh, WebXR, but we are thinking about how WebXR relates to other computer vision systems. In fact, uh, one of the open issues, um, so we do all of the WebXR design work in the open up on GitHub, Um, So feel free to go up there and post issues and join us in the conversation. Um, One of the issues that's open right now is how we actually provide um, the relationship between the camera's position and the XR device's position, so that if you want to use computer vision libraries to augment your experiences in that way, you can relate it back to the the pose data of where the user actually is that the WebXR APIs provide. Um, So that's where we're currently at our thinking on that.
4: Great. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thanks. You had one more on this side, too.
4: Yeah, so I have a question about uh, Sumerian. I noticed that most of the lectures that will be here have tutorials online on the AWS site, and there are dozens of them. But I also noticed that some of them are not in sync with the Sumerian current
0: interface, control interface, so uh, I Amazon going to continue updating those tutorials to be uh, so that people could uh, look at them and learn how to n- currently
4: use uh, the system.
0: Yeah, I think that, so that's an interesting challenge. So we do have, we have um, something like 100 tutorials up there now. We live stream every week on Twitch, uh, at least one or two hours a week. And then we have, I don't know, maybe 100 different videos up on YouTube. But because of the nature of the product, you know, we, we do run actually continuous deployment just in, within our own team, so we're updating very frequently. Uh, a lot of the screenshots and things like that do get out of date. Some of the major shifts, like, you know, when we introduced the VR asset pack, like that basically invalidates all the previous VR tutorials. So we, we're, we're working through those right now. I think with reInvent, we got a little bit of a jam on content, but, uh, but yeah, we'll get through and we'll start, we'll start expiring content as it, as it progresses. But yeah, we do have a public Slack channel. So it's slack.sumerian.aws. There's you know, like, like 2,000 different developers in there. Uh, we, we monitor that 24 seven. So um, if you wanna join and you do have a question about a tutorial that's out of date, um, just hit one of us up directly or, or in general or bugs, too. So, But, yeah, th- thanks for going through them. We appreciate it. I mean, it's been a pretty good response so far. So, yeah, well, Hopefully we'll have some new stuff here, too. Like, I think uh, tomorrow's session and we have something like uh, 55 different workshops that customers or Sumerian uh, team m- m- members are participating in. So ho- hopefully you'll see some new content this week, too.
4: So my question probably relates a little bit uh, with... Uh, previous question back here on uh, compute VR, AR technologies and how that relates to uh, WebXR. There are certain capabilities built into things like core AR on uh, iOS and and, uh, I forget the name for Google, but um, things with markers and how it handles tracking and that sort of thing, are those on the roadmap to be? Uh, included in the spec or is that down the road to be decided?
1: That's another great question. Um, one of the challenges about uh, writing a standard that bridges across all these different platforms is that some things are available in some platforms and not in others. Um, and so we've generally been focusing on what are the, the first things that everyone's gonna have to do to try and build an an AR experience. And that's the stuff that we're looking to get in that very first round that gets officially stamped for standardization. The thing about web standards, though, is that when a browser implements it, it's there. Whether it's officially a standard or not, that's a little bit of a a challenge. Um, One of the things that we are looking at is how we treat um, anchoring versus trackable objects like markers. Um, That isn't officially on the plan for the first snap of the standard. Um, but that doesn't actually mean anything. All that means is that right now the shape of it isn't concrete enough for us to say with confidence that it will be ready and that we would hold the standard on landing it. Um, p- folks who want to come in and help shape the, the API so that it is ready in time, make, it becomes a candidate as a result of that. We have weekly calls where we evaluate whether something should go um, into the, the first snap or not.
0: Yeah, as a, as a stopgap, too, I mean, there, there are partners. Uh, there's an open source framework called ARJS that you can use to do marker-based tracking. Uh, you saw in Spider-Man, actually, if you want to try this out later, uh, it's, it's basically a partner called Eighth Wall, and they do surface tracking through the browser. Um, so there are some kind of transitional things you can use. Um, we also provide uh, open source uh, wrappers for iOS, ARKit, and ARCore, so you can use the native tracking with the, the web rendering, too.
4: Gotcha. And that was that actually relates to what my follow-up question was going to be, which is, so WebXR is about to be released in its first standard edition. When is Sumerian going to support it?
0: Uh, yeah, we'll support it right away, yeah. Right I mean, away. So it, yeah, and we we're lucky to have the spec writer on the <laughs> right. So yeah, we, we, you know, we, if, yeah, if we, it's not right away, it should be very close. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. So, right. so, Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a big focus for us, actually. Just as a side note. Um, you know, uh, this is the first time we've joined something like the W3C and really pushed this far into a standards group. So, you know, it's a, it's a big investment area and we believe that customers do want this over time. So. Are there more?
4: Yeah, I had a question. Uh, so this, this question has to do with hosts. So are there plans in the future to allow developers to actually create their own hosts and customize the models and rig them and do those sorts of things? Because I noticed in the, in the demo with the Spider-Man, I was thinking that Spider-Man himself could be a host, right? And I wasn't sure how they implemented
0: that. So we have a small set of customers who have already actually already done that. Um, so Electronic carrier one of one of them is up here in the front, uh, and they're they're demoing uh, CES huge demo, and you guys have a couple sessions too. Um, but basically, we've we've given like a, a private build of a, a Maya SDK that they could build their own host and then tie to our rig and our animation set. Uh, really, the key is that we've done all the timing and, and that coordination with the poly group so that you know, we can infer kind of the speech that's coming through. How should the host behave? How should they lip sync in the right time? So if you're interested in that, just reach out. Uh, right now it's something that we're doing kind of, um, uh, sorry, the waving in the back, I thought you were talking to me. Uh, she's going like airplane. Um, anyways, it's something, yeah, you just reach out and we'll, we'll get you a private SDK if it's if it's uh, interesting short term, so. Okay, is, that, is there a plan in the future to make that SDK public? Yeah, we're still deciding on, you know, should this be like a host builder or should it be because you know, the, the thing about the Omaya SDK is we're, you know if we're trying to push people towards you know, less of a technology barrier into WebXR 3D development, then you know sending them down the path of deep you know, Maya modeling is sort of a conflict. Um, so it's just something we're discussing with customers on like, is that something we give to agencies and studios? You know, And then we, we focus on like a more host customizer, host builder. So you know, we, I think we'd love feedback on that from, from uh, you know, either side of the argument at this point. So. Okay, thanks. Cool, okay, well we'll stick around for a little while. Uh, Grab one of the Spidey cards if you want, they're also in the booth, and uh, we have some cool stickers and stuff this week, so if if you guys are into that. Um, Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks everyone.